Good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bible, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardback on the scene around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those if you'd like to uh, and turn with us. We'll be on, I think it's 976 in these uh, black hardbacks. Glad that you are here this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you have joined us. Um, we are at the end of a sermon series that we've done over the past few weeks on the Holy Spirit, and so we'll kind of wrap this up today. Some things going on in the future. Next week we'll start uh, a new sermon series on uh, the church, FC Cube, and so we try to do this around once a year, to kind of talk about who we are, who we want to be, where we need to go, things of that nature. So in the fall we'll be um, building out some things where we can um, more, uh, uh, kind of in a more organized way, uh, structure ways for us to study the Bible together and, and have communion together and serve together and those kind of things. So we will we'll spend a few weeks called Life at FC Cube, and, and we'll talk about that coming up. We'll start that next week. Uh, today we'll end our series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I want to do just a couple of things for you this morning. Not a lot. I preached like an obscenely long time last week. Uh, it was like 58 minutes or something like that. So we're going to try not to do that again today. Um, and so, so I don't want to keep you for too long. I have two goals for you this morning, okay? The first one is I just want to give you a text to play with. All right. Um, we're going to look at a text here in Ephesians 1 that is crazy rich and crazy deep, and, and, and you could spend hours, I think, in it, um, just exploring it and thinking about it and kind of diving into it. And so my goal is not to try to tell you everything that I think about this text and point out all the things that I think are interesting about the text, because then we'd be here for another 58 minutes, and we don't want that. Uh, so I'm just going to just throw a couple things your way, and then, then maybe today, later this morning, this afternoon, this evening... Uh, maybe you could find some time and, and play around in the text uh, some more. So I just kind of want to give you a really cool passage and say, here's, here it is for you, and, and, and kind of have fun with this today, maybe this week. Um, and then the second thing I want to do is we end our series on the Holy Spirit. We've spent the last five weeks kind of focusing in on the Spirit, what He does in our lives. We've, we've said three kind of primary roles. The Spirit brings God close to us. We experience His presence through the Holy Spirit. Um, the Spirit transforms us into Christ-likeness. We get the fruit of the Spirit. We become more like Christ. And then the Spirit gifts us for ministry and for witness. The Spirit enables us to do things in powerful ways that we couldn't do on our own. But what I want to do this morning is put the Spirit in the context of the entire Trinity. So the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And in the context of um, the larger world around us, what God's doing in the world around us. Uh, it's dangerous, I think, just to focus on one member of the Trinity and, and kind of lose perspective. Everything that the Spirit does, the Spirit does because of the Son. And because of the Father. And everything that the Father does, he does because of the Son and because of the Spirit. And they all work together in this beautiful, harmonious way in every single action. So this passage, I think, puts um, the Spirit, which we have been talking about and, and kind of diving into together the past few weeks, in a great context here of um, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Spirit, and then their action uh, in the world around us that we have found ourselves a part of. So if you'll read with me, um, Ephesians 1, uh, we'll pick up in verse 3 and we'll read through verse 14. Ephesians 1. Verse 3 to verse 14. The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which 
He has blessed us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishes upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So much here in in this um, handful of verses. Um, a couple observations I want to make here. Um, the first one is, in Greek, this is actually this whole chunk from verse 3 to verse 14 is just one sentence. Um, it's like a ginormous, massive, run-on, your English teacher is going to flunk you, okay, <laughs> sentence. And, and Paul is kind of just kind of out of his mind here. He's going and he's going and he's going. This is how you know Paul's a preacher because he writes like this. Um, <laughs> preaching and speaking is uh, not very similar to writing. Uh, the more I've spoke, the more I have to be disciplined when I write because I want to write like I speak. And when you speak, you just kind of add on phrases and keep adding explanatory things. And your thought just moves from here to there. And sometimes a period just doesn't fit in what you're saying. And so you keep going on and on and on. <laughs> so a period would ruin the sentence. And the subject matter is just too great. And this is what Paul's doing here is he starts off, okay? He's, he's just kind of going on and on and on. He can barely contain himself here. A scholar, Peterson, um, Eugene Peterson, says Paul here is being playful, extravagant. He's engaging us as he tells us what's going on. And this God-created, Christ-saved, and Spirit-blessed world that we've been born into, which we're growing up into. You do see this here, I think, in this passage. It's a very Trinitarian passage, okay? So, so if you notice, you have God the Father here. And he's the primary actor here at the beginning. Blessed be God the Father who's done all these things for us. But God the Father's acted through his Son. And it's very Christ-focused. And, and Jesus is everywhere in this passage. You have the Father, you have the Son. And then the Holy Spirit comes and wraps it all up at the end. The Holy Spirit takes what the Father has done through the Son and makes it real and guarantees it and takes it into the future. He enacts it in the world around this. Father, Son, and Spirit all present here. What Paul's doing is he's giving us this kind of display of who God is and what he is doing and is continuing to do in the world around us. You'll notice in the passage there's no command. There's no rule, there's no law, there's no suggestion, there's not even a hint that you need to respond in a certain way. Um, This is really just a picture. I mean, Paul is painting a picture here, and really the only response is just to kind of observe it, to kind of look at it and go, wow, this is true. This is who God is, and this is what he's been doing. And by some weird course of history, I've found myself the recipient of this love. I've found myself known by God the Father through his Son by his Spirit. And, and Paul just is kind of out of his mind here. He says it, it couldn't get much better than this. That he describes who God is, what he's done. I want to point out for you a couple of things. Um, you'll find seven really important verbs, okay, in these first couple of verses from 3 to 10. Um, if you have a pen in your own Bible, you could do it in our Bibles, I don't care. Uh, what I would do is I would... Uh, Kind of do a little square, okay? There's going to be some method to the madness. A little square around these seven verses, all right? Um, you can call them like verbal rockets. Here's God's actions in the world, all right? The first one you find in verse 3. God the Father has blessed us in Christ. Blessed. He's blessed us. He's, he's blessed. And then in verse 4, we see another verb. Verb number 2. He chose. So God has blessed, and now God has chose. He's chosen us in Him. 
As you keep going in verse 5, you see the third <laughs> verb here. He has predestined us. He has blessed and he's chosen and now he's predestined. In verse 6, blessed again in our ESV translations. It's actually a different word here than the first bless, um, but the same kind of meaning. In other translations, you'll find they might be two different words. Um, but he's blessed, he's chosen, he's predestined, he's blessed. As we keep going in verse 8, he's lavished. Paul's, I think, getting closer to his point here. He's starting to use words that communicate his idea a little more effectively. He's lavish. He's just poured out without regard. And he's completely dumped it on us. He's lavish. He has, in verse 9, made known, making known. And then in, in verse 10, the seventh verb here, he's uniting. He's just going to unite all things in him. God here is the actor. This is what God is doing in creation. And you'll notice as well that it's very Christ-centered, okay? Um, the kind of focus in on this passage, as in the scriptures, is this is how God has acted through Christ. So if you'll notice in the passage, um, it's a little complicated, and some of the phrases are hard to decipher and put together because it's just this long run-on sentence. But you'll see these pronouns, okay? So you'll see, in him, or through him, or by him. And if you have some time and want to play around a little bit, um, later today, try to go figure out these pronouns, okay? All the pronouns. Sometimes it's hard to figure out, is the him God the Father, or is the him Jesus, his son here? Um, a lot of the times, it seems like his son is um, the one in play, the one in mention. I think at least 11 times, by my count, Christ is mentioned in these first few verses as the primary actor of God's decisions in the world, as the way God has chosen, as the way God has predestined, as the way God has blessed, as the way God has lavished. He's done it through his Son, through Jesus Christ, in Christ, through Christ, in the Beloved, in Him, through Him, by His blood. I mean, it's all centered here and focused around Jesus. And then the third thing you'll find, you have these, these actions on God's part. They're kind of centered and mediated in and through Christ. And then you'll find as well, the recipient um, is you and I, us, the Christian community. Um, and all of these things, this pronoun us, will be brought into this. We find ourselves... Um, affected by the salvation of the triune God, by his decisions that have been enacted through his Son. Um, so he's blessed us in Christ, he's chose us in him, um, that we would be holy, he predestined us, he's blessed us in the Beloved, we have redemption through his blood, he's lavished upon us, made known to us, in Christ he's uniting all things together. Paul's just giving us this description of the glorious things that God has been and is doing in creation, and that you and I, the believing community, have found ourselves a part of in all kinds of different ways. I mean, all of us have an individual path that we've come to believe and then we've come to experience Christ in. My story is different than your story. We all have these stories, um, but all of our stories fit within a larger framework. And this is the framework. All of our stories fit within the framework of God the Father sending his son and then pouring out his spirit. And no matter how old you were, or where you were, or what circumstances led you to that, the Christian community as they received this letter that he's done this for us. We've received all of this action. We've recognized it all on our behalf. God and Christ and by the Holy Spirit's at work in the world and we have experienced it. We're the benefactors. We are now returning his blessings back to him in praise for him. The world as we know it is a world in which God the Father has created it, which God the Son, Jesus, has saved and which God the Holy Spirit has blessed and you and I find ourselves as God's creatures, saved by his son, blessed by his spirit. Um, the, the one sentence that kind of drags on and on, you can divide it up into three sections, okay? There's kind of three main frames of thought. It goes from verse 3 to verse 6, then verse 7 to verse 10, then verse 11 to verse um, 13 here, 14. Excuse me. 
What I'm gonna do is give you kind of a drive-by tour, okay, these three sections. I'll just drop a couple things off for you, okay, and then hopefully that will be enough for you to be able to play around um, with the text later on in the day. So in this first uh, section from, from verse three to six, the, the kind of main dominant theme here is that God has chosen us. He's chosen us in Christ, okay? Um, you see this over and over and over again, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, before anything in creation happened, before history had started, there had been this decision on God's part. He chose us in him that would be holy and blameless before him. He predestined the same idea here. He uh, laid out as the plan. He said, this is the destination, okay? Um, the Greek word predestined is actually still common. It's used in Greek. If you go to an airport with Greek science, you'll see this, like destination. This is where it's going. This was the plan. This is where we were going to end up. I made a decision that no matter what road we took, here's where we're going. For adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. You see, um, it repeated this theme in verse 11. We obtain the inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. He's worked all things in order that his plan might come to fruition for the course of his will. Now, when we, when we talk about God's choosing, okay, and God's electing, we call this election. God has chosen certain things to happen in the world. Christians sometimes get in some contentious discussions, okay? And we get confused and we get mad at each other and we take kind of hardline stances on what it means for God to choose the Christian community, to choose us. Um, and, and we get kind of caught up, okay? There's some things we have to wrestle with. If God chose us for salvation, does that mean that um, free will is this illusion, right? I mean, uh, we all have this sense that, that we have free will, that we make choices. So we choose to worship Christ. We choose to come to church. Or we don't choose to come to worship church, uh, to come to church or to follow Christ. And, and God's choosing seems to kind of interact with our free will and kind of um, rub, rub up against it and doesn't seem to fit very well with it. It also, for some people, makes God's character kind of come into question. Um, if, if you imagine God's choosing us before time, picking individuals, right? Looking at all the humans that would ever be and saying, I love them and, and they're going to hell, okay? And, and kind of separating them out before you're born, before anything happens, before you've made any decision. We kind of think, well, maybe that, that I mean, God doesn't sound like a great guy there. I mean, you wouldn't spank a child for something that wasn't their fault, right? Um, in the same way, you know, why would God be so upset at the world, at people who have gone and done these horrible things, if he had made the decision that they were going to do these horrible things, before they even existed, right? I mean, it was all his idea. It's all this one little blueprint that he's kind of filling out. And so you, you have lots of different approaches that Christians take to talking about God's choosing, God's election, God's predestining um, actions. Um, I want to, in just a real quick five, ten minutes, lay out um, my take, okay? Here's my stab at the issue. I'm not a very important person, but probably like two or three times a week, people will ask me, what do you think about predestination, about free will? Um, here, here goes, all right? Here's what I think. Um, I think you have to keep some things in, um, in together with each other. One, I think the scriptures are clear that you and I as human creatures have genuine freedom, genuine free will. Uh, if you look at the scriptures, there are, I mean, you lose count of how many times God himself, from the mouth of God, um, gives a human being a choice says, if you do this, I'll do this. And his response is actually contingent on the human being's choice. Uh, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do that, I'll do that. Um, he says, here's the choice before you. Choose this way or choose this way. Here's the result if you do this. Here's the result if you do this. I mean, over and over and over again, God himself assumes that the creatures he's created have this genuine freedom available to them. Um, I think if you take that away, then, then the Bible itself becomes very disingenuous. And all the revelation we've gotten from God. 
I don't think it makes sense at all for God to come to a group of people and say, if you do this, I'll reward you. If you do this, I'm going to punish you. And then to like go behind the curtains and be like, but ha ha ha, there was a blueprint from before the world. I already know what choice you're going to do. This is all like a big game to entertain myself, right? I mean, I just don't think it all fits together that way. So I think you have to keep in mind that there's some sort of real, legitimate, genuine freedom we've been gifted as, as creatures. God has given us the ability to make decisions and to affect his world. Um, to, to make changes in his world, to do things that, that have influence in his world. Now, freedom, I don't think is as simple as sometimes we think it is. Um, freedom is limited. All of our, our freedom is limited. Freedom is contingent on all kinds of things around you that are out of your control. For instance, we could ask the question, am I free to go dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal? I mean, technically, it's not against the law. No one's going to shoot me if I go try to do it, Right? Um, I can tell you, and it's going to come as a shock, but I cannot do this. I, I can't jump high enough to get there and, and get the ball through the hoop and dunk a basketball. Um, so, so a lot of people might say, technically I'm not free to do that. I cannot, I mean I literally cannot make the choice to go dunk a basketball. Because what's free to me is contingent on my body, on the world I live in, on the circumstances around me. Freedom is also contingent on your decisions. Um, freedom can become greater or narrower depending on what you do. So, for instance, um, you can ask this question. Am I free right now to play an incredible drum solo? I'm not. I cannot make the choice to play for you a good drum solo. I could try, but I 100% will fail to do it. And you know why? Because I freely gave up the ability to play a drum solo when I never took lessons. I never practiced. Now, I can tell you this, if I started taking drum lessons, I would get more and more free to do more and more beautiful things on a drum set. You see how this works, right? I mean, our freedom is, is I think, not as, uh, uh, as easy to understand as we think it is. Freedom's limited and contingent on all kinds of things. Uh, a group of us went to a C.S. Lewis play last night called The Great Divorce, and there's a, a great example in there where he talks about how our actions start to shape us, Right? Um, eventually, if you do the same thing over and over again, you kind of become that thing. Your freedom gets narrower and narrower. Uh, so when someone maybe first grumbles, maybe you can separate them from that attitude. There is a person who grumbles. But if they grumble every day for seven years, eventually it gets to the point where it's hard to separate them, right? I mean, they're a grumbler. At some point, you might just be a kid who cheated. But 20 years later, you might be a cheater, Right? I mean, your actions shape you into who you are. Um, your freedom gets, gets narrower, gets smaller based on your situation around you, the world God's created. Okay? There's all these things that, that interplay with our freedom. But I think there's genuine freedom um, that the scriptures say that human beings have received. I also think, though, that there is a very genuine choosing action on God's part here, this election that takes place. And you've got to hold them both together. So here's how I do this. Okay? I have publicly taken stances in the past seven years on both sides, okay, emphasizing free will, emphasizing God's choosing. I've changed my mind enough times to be very humble about it, okay? Um, here is my quick stab at it this morning. I think three things you have to keep in mind. Number one, God's choosing, God's electing, God's predestining is Christological. It's Christ-centered. It's focused first and foremost on Christ, not on you, and not on me, and not on individual people. The primary decision that, God's, that God makes before the foundation of the world here, the choice he makes, the destiny he sets here, is not primarily about you and I. 
It's about Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's about his plan in Jesus for his creation. Um, God, as God, is radically free. Does this make sense? God doesn't have to do anything. What Christians will say, though, is before anything happened, God made a choice in himself. Who will I be? How will I be toward this creation? And God chooses to be like Jesus. God chooses to be radically for creation, to be radically for his human beings. You can't miss out. And so I think the, the great theologians emphasize this here in Ephesians too. God has chosen us, but the, in him is so important. In him he's chosen us. He's chosen us to be adopted through Jesus Christ. The main decision here is that I'm going to send my son and he's going to redeem people. He's going to show my love for people. We, we get off track if we don't keep this, I think, at the core. Election, predestination is primarily about Jesus. God chooses to love his creation. God chooses to send his son. God chooses to pour out his spirit. And that will happen and affect different people in different ways um, as he goes about. Martin Luther, who is real famous for uh, arguing that you have no free will. It's all an illusion. God has already blueprinted your whole life. Okay, This is kind of what he's known for theologically. He has this quote, which I think he knows it here. He says, And you're wondering where and how to find the creator God of predestination and majestic holiness. Remember, there's no other God than this man, Christ Jesus. See God revealed, hanging on a Roman cross, dying for your sins. If you want to know the decision God's made about you, let me clue you in on it this morning. Before you were around, before you existed, before anything existed, before any activity had happened in any existence, God's decision for you looked like Jesus. And it looked like him coming and becoming a human being. And it looked like him interacting with people who maybe didn't deserve his interaction. And his, his decision for you looked like a cross. His decision for you looked like, I will give up my very own life and give everything I have to redeem and to save and to pursue what's mine, my creation. You've got to be careful Sometimes we talk about God's choosing as if it's a mystery that happens behind closed doors. The whole point of the choosing in scriptures is that it's been opened up to us. We know what the choosing looks like. It looks like Jesus. In him we've been chosen. In him, this is the decision. God's been revealed in Christ. Um, A God that does not look like Christ uh, is a God who is not um, the the Christian God. Um, So election is Christological. Two, election is corporate. It's communal, okay? We in the West are so individualized, everything we try to make it about individuals. So when we think about God choosing people, we think about God choosing Sally versus John, right? And we're like, well, God chose to love John. God didn't choose to love Sally. What happened with Sally? Did she get a fair shake? You know, right? And we think about individuals. It seems really unfair to us. It doesn't work very well. I would suggest, though, nowhere in the scriptures do you find this kind of individualized way of thinking. We've talked about this before at FCQ. Um, almost all of these yous in the scriptures are plural, right? Y'all. I said, read the Bible like a Texan. You need to read these yous as y'alls. It's talking to a community of people. Um, people back then in this culture just didn't think like that, right? They thought in we, not me. Their identity was dependent on their community, not this individual American like self-made self, right? So when, when, when Paul's saying God chooses us, God chose us, he's referring not to like individual people. He's referring to a community, not primarily the Christian community. It's a very universal pronoun. He says God's chosen us. Paul doesn't um, try to distinguish between the people who are hearing this letter in Ephesus. 
Like these three people in the church, but not these two people in the church. He, he very indiscriminately says all of us, 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 every single one of us. Who are the us? The people who have been baptized, who are in worship, who are walking in faith, who have believed in Christ. The Christian community, that's who he's chosen. It's a corporate, it's a communal thing. And I think this allows us to hold together um, a sense of genuine freedom and a sense of um, God's choosing. So, for example, uh, three months ago, I chose that I was going to preach on this text. And you might come this morning and go, by golly, this is a great text. And come up afterwards and go, when did you make the choice that you were going to preach on this text? And I said, well, three months ago I chose that I was going to preach on this. By the way, it wasn't three months ago. I don't plan like that. Um, but just for the illustration. And, and you'll say, oh, wow, I guess, I guess three months ago my fate was decided this morning. I mean, it was chosen for me. This was going to be what I heard. Well, let's analyze the situation a little bit better than this, right? I chose the text that I was going to preach for you, but I didn't choose if you were going to be here or not. Does that make sense? There were, there were multiple choices that came together in what's happening right now. And some of them were out of your control, but some of yours, right, were legitimate free choices. I had, before you were aware of it, determined a plan. And then you had made choices that came into line with my plan. And, and you had heard it, but your free will was not violated in any sort of real sense, right? Or think of a sports team. Um, you could have two sports teams and say, uh, I guarantee you, I promise you with winning, this sports team will win. Right? I'm choosing that this sports team will win, but every single person here on the court gets to pick what team they're going to be on. Does this make sense? So I think this is the difference between choosing individuals versus choosing a community. If you choose a community, um, uh, you can always get in the community. You can come out of the community, right? The choice is yours whether you're going to be in Christ, in the Christian community, or not in Christ, not in the Christian community. This is the same with Israel. So Israel is our Old Testament background for thinking about election. God elected Israel. God chose Israel. Um, and you could get in Israel. In fact, it happens a lot in the Old Testament. People who are not naturally Israelites become Israelites. They get circumcised. They start following Torah. They start observing the Sabbath, right? There are ways into the chosen people. And there are ways out of the chosen people. You could have grown up Jewish, been circumcised from your eight days old, and walk away from it as an adult. No longer be an Israelite. How did you know if you were chosen? If you were a chosen Israelite, where were you in the community? Did you come in? Or did you decide to go out? The choice was a corporate choice. And all throughout the Old Testament, God makes it very, very clear that his election of Israel, and I think this applies to his election of you and I, the Christian community, is not of playing favorites. He tells Israel this all the time. Look, I, yeah, I chose you, but it's not because I loved you more than everybody else. It's not so you could say we're in and you're out. So you could divide this wall between people. I chose you because I wanted to do something through you. I think election always has this purpose behind it. God doesn't choose to exclude people. God chooses to reach people. You see this here, I think, even in Ephesians. We were the first to hope in his praise. We've been predestined that we would be the first to hope. We've been chosen, not because we can figure out this little community that has been set from before all time began and then say, sorry, you're just on the outside. We've been chosen so that we can go reach the world and so that more and more will come into the community and find themselves as well in Christ. God had planned from beginning of the, the beginning of the world um, to, to come and save and redeem his people. Um, so even, even um, like a hardcore Calvinist, someone who is way on the side of God's election and, and de-emphasizes the free will aspect, would say this. No one, would choose, no one chooses to follow Christ only to find that God hasn't chosen them. Does that make sense? That, that's not a situation that ever happens in life. 
right? That no matter what kind of stance you take on this, the, the, the decision in front of you is the same. Follow Christ. Get baptized. Believe. Come into the community. Start following him. Um, you won't do that only to find yourself at the end of the day, God going, well, that was a great effort. I mean, you really did that, but I had to pick you. That's, that's not a worry from the, the Christian scriptures. That's not something that keeps us up at night, thinking that somehow, you know, we, we chose to worship and we chose to have faith and, and we followed Christ and received the Spirit, but unfortunately, just, we just weren't on the list. That's not a scenario that's going to work itself out. Election's corporate, it's Christological, and the third one, election is doxological, or it is, um, we can say this, it's good news that makes people happy. Every time you see in the Bible Paul, and particularly he talks about this most in the New Testament, talking about predestination, it's in the context of joy. It's doxology. It's never like a calculating, mysterious thing. It's never something that's meant to inspire fear in people or make people question themselves or make people question God's love for them. It's always when Paul is overflowing with joy and happiness. So here's what we can say about election and, and predestination. The moment it becomes bad news or it becomes something that scares you, you've messed it up. Okay, you've, you've somehow twisted it to where it shouldn't be. Um, there isn't not this mysterious decision that's been made before eternity that might exclude you no matter what happens or what you want to do. Election is something that people discover when they wake up in Christ and they find out all along God had been planning to love them like this. And through a whole lot of circumstances, some of their choices and some of the things that happened to them. I don't think it's easy to draw the line, Right? What did you freely choose? Well, you didn't choose to be born in that family, and you didn't choose to be born in this area. A lot of things in our life are like divine choices, out of our control. And, and the free choices we make and the divine providence, they all come together, and a group of people one day wake up and go, he, he, he loves us. He's adopted us. From the in the world, he had chosen to do this. And it's, it's good news. It's good news. It's doxological. Uh, another theologian, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is a great name, uh, said this about predestination. He said, How can a person seriously believe that God is love and has given himself up for us on the cross because he's loved us and chosen us from all of eternity and has predestined us for an eternity of bliss in his presence? How can anyone believe this to be true and at the same time refuse to love God in return or despair of God's love? Um, understanding um, this doctrine of election and predestination, God's choosing decision before all of time leads you to love him back and leads you to be assured of his love for you. If it leads you to question God's love for you, you've literally taken it in the opposite direction. Does this make sense of, of what it's doing here in the scriptures, every passage where you find it, where it's doxological, it's, it's something good, it's something that's supposed to kind of blow you away. And, and make you feel like you're part of this plan that's much, much bigger than yourself, that you're not an accident, that, that all along God has been planning on this, and he has chosen to pour out his love on you in the most magnificent way possible. He says that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the first section, God has chosen us in Christ. The second session, in verse 7 through 10, um, he talks about the forgiveness that we've received, and, and God has chosen to forgive us through Christ. Um, there's a lot of hints here of the Passover lamb from the Old Testament. So in the same way that God chose Israel, God also provided a sacrifice for them that they might be forgiven. Paul covers all the different metaphors here for salvation. He talks about adoption. We're brought into God's family. And then he talks here about forgiveness, the fact that you and I are forgiven of our sins. We're redeemed. We've been made free from the things that hold uh, us guilty and hold us um, in wrath and hold us um, as, as punishable, kind of selfish 
um, deathly people. He's lavished on us wisdom and insight. He's made known to us his plan. He says the mystery here is, is that God's ultimate desire is for everything in the world to be centered around Christ. Heaven and on earth. Everything will be brought together in life and joy and peace through his son. That's where the whole world is headed. That's the plan. That's the mystery. And it's been made known to you and I, the community, because we're on a head start toward this direction. We're already being made right. We're already being transformed in God's glory. But we've been forgiven. We've had our, 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 our Jesus' blood wash away our sins, our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, there's a beautiful truth about Christianity. And all the, all, this, all the junk that you've done, and all the junk that you're doing right now, and all the junk that you will do in the future, it's forgiven. It's been paid for. And you're perfectly loved. There's, there's nothing keeping you back from all of God's love for you. Um, I think sometimes we underestimate sin. And so we, we think sin is just these blatant acts of disobedience. And, and I think in doing so, we excuse ourselves from the more sinister, like pervasive types of sin. Again, in the play last night, there's a moment where uh, a man who was a murderer in his life was talking to another man. He was upset at him because he was being rewarded and he was a murderer. You don't deserve this. And he said, but I've come to realize the murder was bad, right? I mean, it was the wrong thing. But that wasn't the worst thing I'd ever done. I mean, that's what I've realized since I've died. Uh, and he actually tells the guy talking to him, he says, I murdered you every day in my head. <laughs> like, I hated your guts, right? I mean, sin is, is much more pervasive than sometimes I think we let it. How many times do we take um, what's God's and what should make us praise him and love him more and we use it selfishly and we, we ignore him and we... We, you know, eat fajitas and we don't sing a worship song and, and we, right, we take a gift and we don't take it back to him. That sin is, is much bigger and broader, I think, than we realize sometimes. And the good news is um, it's taken care of. It's forgiven. It was all paid for on the cross. Uh, I get asked sometimes, is someone who's committed suicide, will they be able to um, enjoy eternity with God? And, and the kind of assumption behind the question is uh, that suicide is like the worst sin, because you don't have the ability to repent afterwards, right? And you kind of cut yourself off from the ability to do that because now you're dead because you killed yourself, right? And so you've, like, gotten to the loophole of God's grace. And so this is why, like, this, out of all sins, is like, don't do this um, because you have no chance to ask for forgiveness. The question that I've always had, though, is when, when was that ever the requirement for receiving God's forgiveness? That you had to list off all your sins and be aware of them and ask for forgiveness from them. I can guarantee you that you have no idea how many times you've sinned in your life. And that when you die, you will have died without repenting of a lot of stuff. And it doesn't matter. He died for you. He forgave you. It's not your job to remember all of it, to list it all out before him. That's, that's, not, that's not a transaction that happens where we bring the receipts to God and he reimburses us. <laughs> No, he's lavished it on us. He's poured it on us. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's out of control. It's beyond what you could ever imagine. He's forgiven us through his son. And the last little section here, verse 11 to verse 14, it's on what, what we've been talking about the past few weeks, and the spirit, the inheritance we have gotten from God. Um, God has given us a salvation down payment in the spirit. He's given us a guarantee of our future salvation. The spirit functions in both these ways here in the passage. We have an inheritance in front of us. Um, and when we believed, we were sealed, he says, with a promised spirit. So God's presence that was promised to come to his people has come. And he's the guarantee or the down payment. Just as, as you put forward like a, a lump sum of cash at the beginning to guarantee that more is coming. That's what the spirit is in our lives. In some sense, the spirit is the inheritance. 
the future is God's presence being beautifully and gloriously, um, glo- uh, uh, beautifully and, and glorifically, there's not a word for that, uh, present on all of creation. And, and, and we experience that in a little part right now. We experience his presence right now. Now, it's not as, as big and as vast and as wide as it will be one day. And, and it needs to be one day, right? I mean, turn on the news. It's not. The world is a very bloody and violent and nasty place. According to scriptures, one day, that will not exist. God's spirit will have transformed everything. His kingdom will have come on earth as in heaven. But we get a little bit of that right now. I mean, we get this down payment. We get to experience the future in a small part right now. Not only is he the down payment, but, but he's also the guarantee. He's our assurance that we're getting to the end, that the end is coming. Because sometimes, if we're honest, it seems like that's not coming. That maybe we're not headed that direction. And then we, we have the Spirit. We go, no, this is a true thing. This is really happening. We're going this direction. The Spirit serves as assurance to us as he brings God close to us. He, he transforms us as he empowers us to, to live and to witness and to work um, for Christ and for his kingdom. The triune God on display in our midst, Father, Son, and Spirit working in and among and through you and I. And through various circumstances and various situations, just about all of us in this room have somehow woken up and, and learned how to say, Father. And learned how to, to say, Son. And, and he loves me. I've been adopted as a son and as a daughter. It was his blood that, that brought me into the family. Beyond what I could ever imagine. Here's the gospel in Ephesians 1, 3-14. Um, it's better than you can make up. The gospel is better news than if, than, than if you had 30 minutes in the afternoon you could make up for yourself. The world that Christians have awoken to is the best possible thing that you could imagine. A triune God choosing from all eternity to love and lavish and bless you and I. To bring us into his family. And Paul says it's all for his, his praise. It's all for his glory. And, and Paul's just kind of overwhelmed here. As he recognizes who God is and what he's doing. And what he's up to and what he continues to do. And then the small but beautiful role that he's been brought into in that. As an adopted one. As a forgiven one. As a spirit sealed one. So this morning we don't have no rules. We have no commands. There's no go and do likewise. Um, maybe what we're going to say this morning is, is just to, to wake up. Open your eyes up. This is the world that we live in. This is the world that you're a part of. This is the story that you've been brought into. The Father sent the Son and, and poured out His Spirit. Believe that reality. There are lots of things in our world that, that try to convince us this is not the defining truth of our existence. Christians have to choose to believe this. This is what makes up who I am, where I'm going, what I should do in the future. We need to live in that reality. We need to make choices according with this truth. At the end of the day, a lot of the times, we just need to enjoy it. We believe it, and we live it, and then we enjoy it. I think some of the, the most spiritually rich times are, are times when, when you kind of sit back and you have nothing to say. And you're just kind of aware. And you're just kind of enjoying the fact that what's happened has happened and who God is is who he is and it what I didn't create it I didn't do it but it's great he loved me chose me forgave me adopted me poured out his spirit in my life and did that for you too 
this morning we, we praise him and we love him and we return his blessings back to him we say blessed be you and praise praise to you would you pray with me father we love you we thank you for all the gifts that you have given us we thank you for um, your eternal uh, historical work uh, we thank you for who you are and, and for your love for us and, and for your character and your unchanging nature and we we thank you for your Son and for the Spirit. Father, we, we pray that, that this morning you would awaken us up to the reality of your love and work in our lives and in the world, that you would allow us to believe this and to live this and to enjoy this. I pray that, that, that passages like this would not just be another passing idea that comes in one ear and not the other, but would be stuff that leaves us in awe and leaves us breathless and leaves us feeling like a little kid who just won the lottery because uh, it, it just can't get better than this. Uh, we love you. We thank you for your love. We pray that you would help us love each other better and more faithfully. We pray that, that we would, through your spirit, day by day, become to look more like your son as we learn what it means to live in your family, to be in your family, to be your sons and daughters. We love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That all God's people this morning prayed.